This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. The following show has a lot of explicit content. I'm sure you'll like it because of that. It's Wednesday, May 11th, 2022. From Peachfish Productions, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pasca. A ruling out of Atlanta held that Marjorie Taylor Greene should not be dropped from the ballot for inspiring insurrection. You probably know about the case because I talked about it twice on The Gist, once as a full examination of the hearing and once as part of an analysis in which I kind of made the case that I cover news differently from everyone else. What I did was I pointed out that the lawyers bringing the case had a really high bar to clear, did not come close to clearing it, failed in key ways to even make the case that the information they were presenting could be considered evidence. I said, while it's a bad thing that a person as dangerous as Marjorie Taylor Greene holds office, the best outcome would be for her to fail in her re-election bid rather than being barred from running, which wasn't going to happen. Because while I don't know the future, and I certainly don't want to be Mr. Strong Predictions about events yet to happen, I almost never say this is how cases will be decided, this is how elections will turn out. But with this one, I said, Marjorie Taylor Greene being barred from the ballot was very, very, very unlikely. And she wasn't barred from the ballot. Administrative Judge Charles Bedreau wrote, The difficulty with the challenger's theory is the lack of evidence. <laughs> Addressing the one utterance that could even possibly be taken as a call for insurrection, which was Green telling a Newsmax reporter that this was their 1776 moment, the judge said, quote, one ambiguous statement on January 5th, 2021, which appears to be the only direct post-oath evidence supporting the challenger's case is simply not enough. Challengers have failed to meet the burden of proof. So I was right the case was a loser and should never have been taken seriously. That's not why I'm getting into this, to say that I was right. And I should also point out that the probative value of questions Green was asked under oath was, let's say, minimal, kind of non-existent. That was another big way this case was being looked at. What if she trips up with her hand raised on a Bible? But I'm not saying any of this to underline the fact that I was right. I just wanted to take the case from the beginning to the middle to the end and trace the coverage. A lot of attention was given to this case because of the wish that someone could save us from a menace. But the reporting was basically, this woman is a menace. That's not covering the story. That's spinning a related but different story. But in one way, out of all this, I was wrong. Because how I said this would be covered was outrage on the way in because the media would whip up frenzied sentiment and outrage on the way out because the righteous outcome failed to materialize. But in fact, the actual ruling, the loss, got almost no attention. I follow the news closely. I never encountered this story. The New York Times didn't publish a story about this Friday ruling until Sunday, which I did miss because I was busy honoring my mom, who is barred from the ballot in Georgia. It's sad to say something about residency requirements, and I presume the arsenal of firearms she maintains. CNN, as far as I could tell, barely mentioned the lost suit. 
MSNBC did an entirely unchallenging interview with the losing attorney who acted as if the judge found his case, you know, something other than totally deficient. This was in contrast to those lengthy segments that I played for you. MSNBC's Mehdi Hassan, CNN's Jim Acosta, engaging in the can you believe the audacity sermons with no hint of discussion of the weakness of the case as a legal case. So I got that part wrong. I thought the dopamine delivery system that is cable news required some more hits. Maybe better to just all but ignore that the suit lost than risk revisiting the original coverage. More likely, however, this is I think what really happened, the dopamine was in fact being delivered in another way. Coverage of the leaked Alito decision. Now that actually is something to be aggrieved about. But this is how the news works in 2022. Here's something to be outraged about. Oh, that didn't pan out. Uh, Ignore it. Here's the real thing. The problem isn't that the liberal media is just lying to us nonstop. No, the problem is one of discernment or lack thereof. The media's incentives are misaligned with anything close to moderation. It's not all a bunch of hyped up exaggerations. Some really are bad, as bad as the tone, tenor, and terror of the announcers would have us believe. Sometimes there really is a wolf eating the sheep. But most of the time, it's just a generic seven-minute wolves threat or menace segment. And then afterwards, what happened? There was no poaching? Okay, that shall not be revisited or referenced again. On the show today, I stay in Georgia for another spiel about the law. No, not the arrest of young thug who really needs to change his name to elder valued community member if the state's RICO charge does go to trial. This one's about free speech on campus. But first, we return to the work and words of Jeff Nussbaum. He was a speechwriter for Tom Daschle, Al Gore, Joe Biden, most of the Democrats at the DNC. And he is out with a book. We talked about it yesterday. We finish up talking more about current events today. The name of the book is Undelivered, the never heard speeches that would have rewritten history. Jeff Nussbaum up next. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Yesterday, Joe Biden blamed ultra-MAGA Republicans as having no plans to fix inflation. The other path is the ultra-MAGA plan put forward by congressional Republicans. MAGA, sure, but ultra-MAGA? Well, spokesperson Jen Psaki said, ah, adding a little little ultra ultra to it, it. give it a little extra pop. (laughs) It was scripted. In Poland, the president said, however, of Putin, for God's sake, This man cannot remain in power. That was not scripted. The president's words are always obsessed over, and there's really only so much they could do, for good or ill. Joining me once again to talk about this is Jeff Nussbaum, author of Undelivered, the Never Heard Speeches that would have rewritten history, 
who has just left the White House. And when I say just left, Jeff, how long ago was that? Uh, two weeks ago. Okay. So a couple of weeks ago, you left the White House. And of course, we in the media, in the public, we do obsess on the president's words. And he and you has to know that. But, you know, especially from your position, really the only thing you could do is to address the words. So first is a big picture question. Um, how much can good words, I guess bad words can totally sink you, but how much can the difference between good words, great words, and adequate words, how much can that really change the trajectory of any politician, even the president? I think it can have a meaningful impact. I think certainly great words can help introduce you as an inspirational new player on the scene. I was in Boston helping oversee speechwriting at the 2004 Democratic Convention. I saw you know, then state senator candidate Barack Obama's draft speech. And I thought, that looks all right. And then when he spoke it in the room, there was just an electricity that you, that you weren't feeling from other speakers. Right. And in that electric moment, which put Barack Obama on the map, it was the words and it was the delivery. And so great words absolutely can, can inspire people, can introduce. Um, workmanlike words, you know, maybe at the margins, push an agenda forward. And it gets to sort of how you think of, of words. Is, is a speech an oration meant to inspire and elevate? Or is it a conversation meant to explain? When someone becomes president, I, I agree that it can help you get there and gain attention and shine spotlights and reframe debate. There are all sorts of things that words can do. But once you're in a position to take the current position where there is inflation and there is a war and it is the you know iron rule of midterms, which is usually a backlash, much of the attention, I find, is on President Biden's words, but it does seem to me that there is just so much that even the best words as delivered by the best orator could possibly do. The, the rhetorical tale can't really wag the reality dog. Um, even the idea of spinning to me seems totally outdated. One of the things we, we talked a lot about is you need to meet people where they are. You, you need to show that you understand what they're feeling and what they're doing. In part, and I never pushed this idea too far, I, I kind of said, if we were a different, if President Biden was a different kind of president, there's part of me that wants to say like, you know, suck it up, Americans. Like we've been through a, we've been through a terrible, terrible pandemic. Our economy is recovering better than any nation in the world. I, I got you with the rescue plan checks that you didn't expect a child tax credit that reduced child poverty by nearly 50%. So suck it up. Mm -hmm. Now, but but I think by and large, the 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 rule is you got to show you understand where people are, where they're coming from, and you got to show that you're working on it. It's I had this incredible experience when the colonial pipeline hack took place. And I had the opportunity to work with, you know, our cyber response people and, and the folks at Department of Transportation, and, and they helped put together this statement that said, okay, the pipeline's down, but we've waived rules so that truckers can drive gas to stations um, that aren't currently getting it. We've got, we've waived a rule that allows ships to bring more from the Gulf. And so we have this whole group of actions that are being taken and things that are going to be done. And I was able to help put together this draft explaining how all this is underway and, and don't worry about it. 
And then I drove home and not a single gas station had gas. Mm -hmm. And so I felt responsible for kind of uh, perpetuating a bit of a disconnect in that moment. And so I think it's always the job of the speechwriter to look inside for information, but also look outside. Right. What do you make of the fact that during the Trump administration, the idea of the gaffe or the verbal gaffe stopped being reality? And for all of our political lives, it were. And it seems to have come back, you know, uh, your former boss uttering a statement about genocide or, you know, an impolitic statement about how tough he's going to be on the Russians. That's considered a gaffe, the likes of which under the Trump administration was just not paid attention to. I understand that uh, our, we were overwhelmed with stimuli and maybe something verbal wouldn't register. But during that time, were you saying to yourself, well, this is this is uh, a huge sea change of the way I've always thought about politics? Or did you think we're gonna, if we get past Trump, come back to normal where people will be picking over a word here or a word there? I certainly thought Trump was a huge sea change and it just tested anyone's ability to flood the zone with fact checks or unpack the implications of, of each thing he said. And it was a painful reminder that if you take shame out of the equation, if someone is not shamed by making things up or misstating things, then you really have very little you can do to police them. So I knew we would snap back with Biden, but I do think we've snapped back in a somewhat healthier way in that we pay attention to statements that may or may not be scripted that have significant import or implications, and we pay a little bit less to those that don't. So I think you're right. Uh, let's take an example. When he kind of called Peter Ducey of Fox uh, an idiot or whatever he said about uh, Peter Ducey for saying, uh, is inflation a bad thing for you? I, You're right. It got a lot of attention, but I don't think it got attention from serious hand ringers saying this is going to amount to anything other than a dust up between a journalist and a politician that doesn't affect yeah, and, people's and a, lives. In a previous era, there'd be two weeks of like, yeah. is that presidential temperament? Is right. this how we want our presidents to talk? But and, when and, he delivers a speech in Poland and it has some extraneous uh, statements at the end, uh, that is given attention and you would admit it warranted attention. I do. I <laughs> yeah. do. And I agree. And um, yeah. And so what do you do as a speechwriter? Are you tasked with, quote, the walk back or does someone else figure that out? Sometimes we throw in some ideas mm -hmm. um, about how to clarify. Um, I will say it was an honor to work for a guy that that for whom um, even the quote unquote gaffes were statements of moral clarity and righteousness. Yeah, right. Uh, as opposed to. Um, now, that righteousness and moral clarity may have implications that need to be accounted for. Right. Uh, and, and that's what you have a, a federal government to do and a State Department. Um, but yeah, we, we often think, okay, if, if, if we need to clarify this, what, what's the way that clarifies it in line with the realization that this is something the president says for a reason? Yeah. So how do you, I would, I would guess that everyone in a speech writing shop or the communications shop just naturally, um, naturally pushes back against whenever the press seems to be piling on 
either claiming that there was a gaffe or claiming that you misspoke or trying to hold the president or the spokesperson's words to account. There's always a, come on, you guys are uh, overdoing it. Um, I'll give you an example that you probably remember, which is after, uh, right before Russia invaded Ukraine, there was uh, talk about how much the sanctions could do to dissuade them from invading Ukraine, and then Russia invaded. And afterwards, there was very accurate talk about, essentially, you know, sanctions can only do so much, and we're going to try to keep on the sanctions. And there was a day when the White House press corps was up in arms, but you said the sanctions would work. And so I thought that was just a ridiculous complaint of the press corps, and I'm sure you did too. I did. And one of the things I've admired so much about President Biden is he takes the long view. He's always taken the long view. And it is a really tough argument to make to say, breathe, let's see what happens. Breathe, this stuff takes a while, but it's going to make a difference. And and our, we're just not wired for that. Mm-hmm. I actually asked you that question as a little bit of a preface for what I really wanted to get at, which was there are the instances where there is the intense blowback and you are right to take a breath, perhaps discount how uh, hair on fire the press is in the moment. But then there are other instances where it's legitimate blowback and waiting three days to see how it plays is not to your benefit. So how do you tell the difference? I, I don't have a great answer for you, but I'll, I'll try to get at that speaking in general terms, not in President Biden terms, which is one of the things I've seen with a lot of folks I've worked with is you've said or done something that clearly needs to be walked back. To me, the first rule is, does the person who said or did it accept that it needs to be walked back? Because to me, half of all problems occur when someone is forced to walk something back or apologize for something that in their mind, they're not ready to apologize for. And that's where you get weak apologies, incomplete apologies, disingenuous apologies. Governor Spitzer in New York could have not apologized and held on. There are lots of people who, in retrospect, Al Franken, uh, Senator Franken, probably should have been defiant because, again, people's attention spans are so short that that they can't maintain the outrage for long enough to really fully act on it. It's hard, I would say, to take, well, let's just take the Franken example. Not only would Franken have to (laughs) realize- Yes, please, I'd prefer to take that example. (laughs) (laughs) Well, not only did Franken have to realize apologies could hurt, so did the many Democratic senators calling for his uh, ouster. But but again, it's it's another moment where the correct response, apology or not apology, probably would have been to say, breathe. Yes. Let's take a pause. Yes. Let's find out a little more about this and, let, and then let's see where we are. Do you think that there have been waves of rhetorical styles that are influenced by the rhetorical political star of the moment? I think about this a lot like football, which is whatever coach's style is winning. Yeah you get a bunch of offenses that look just like it. It's a right? copycat like, league in politics, Jeff. <laughs> it, it is a copycat league. It is, a, right? Like you had a lot of offenses that look like the Buffalo Bills that all of a sudden football got real boring because they started to look like the New York Giants, but when they looked like the 49ers. And yeah. so, yes, you see it. Um, you see it certainly in politics. You saw in the Obama era a lot of Democratic up-and-comers 
talking about hope and change and yes, we can, and sort of doing B-list imitations of, of President Obama. You see it now in the worst possible way with all of these proto-Trumps. Who really over-indexes in elections? Who overperforms? It's It's not a style, it's an authentic person. Mm-hmm. So Bernie overperforms because Bernie is Bernie, unapologetically so. I think Obama overperformed because Obama was Obama, unapologetically so. Trump was Trump, for worse, unapologetically so. And so I fear that the lesson people are taking is, let me sound like this guy who won, when the lesson should be, let me sound like the person only I can uniquely be. Yeah, yeah. Okay, you're a Bostonian. Last thing I want to talk about. Uh, I do love the Kennedys and their rhetoric and their off-the-cuff rhetoric. I do think much of their speech-making has been overrated over the years. We talked about Ted Kennedy. Now, let's talk about a speech that you reference, which is John F. Kennedy talking about going to the moon. But why some say the moon? Why choose this as our goal? And they may well ask, why climb the highest mountain? Why, 35 years ago, fly the Atlantic? Why does Rice play Texas? We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. I think that's a very odd speech. I've replayed it a couple of times. He says, we're going to go to the moon and do the other things. I don't know where that comes from. In this decade, pronounced like the past tense of decay. And by the way, there are other speeches where he knows how to say decade. And it comes on the heels of a joke about rice football. Explain to me why that's great rhetoric as opposed to just a great sentiment. We're going to go to the moon. And then we went to the moon. Yeah, I think people with the hindsight of history feel very warmly Mm -hmm. about setting of the lofty goal. Yes. But part of why I put a little bit of that moonshot speech in the book was more to joke about how localized and parochial that speech was. Uh, He says, he's speaking at Rice University, he says, why do we go to the moon? We choose to do the moon, you know, go to the moon and do the other things. And do the point, other which things. Which is like, what other things are we doing? I, I mean, know. it seems like you can give yourself a half sentence there to talk about the Peace Corps, the Civil Rights Bill, or any right. any any of the actual other things he was trying to do. So, and so he says, you know, why fly the Atlantic? Why climb the highest mountain? Why does Rice play Texas? And he gets this big laugh because Rice was not a good football team. Texas was a very good football team. Ironically, of course, later that month, uh, Texas came in to play Rice, un- undefeated, ranked number one in the nation. Rice tied Texas and yeah. denied them the national championship. So now we know why Rice plays Texas. But but I agree. I, I think that um, even the great speakers uh, have a couple duds. Yes. And, and there are some, <laughs> well, there's, there's some but, Kennedy duds. And I don't know if that's uh, a dud, but that is regarded as uh, a great speech. I think that there are peculiarities there. And I don't know why he said decade. I've done the forensic analysis. He knows how to say decade. I believe that this nation should commit itself to achieving the goal before this decade is out of landing a man on the moon and returning him safely to the earth. 
But there is the other Robert F. Kennedy speech, and your book is undelivered, speeches that were written but weren't delivered. This is a speech that was delivered, but there's no record of it. No one taped it. So it just became a legend. And I think you might know which one I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. Martin Luther King had been shot April 4th, 1968. Cities were burning across America. And then supposedly... Robert F. Kennedy gets on the back of a flatbed truck and quotes Aeschylus to a crowd on the verge of rioting, we are told. I can't quite believe this would have the uh, salubrious effect that history says it has. And also, if no record of that exists, how did everyone beyond that crowd ever hear it and were affected by it? It gets to a couple things that we think about in terms of speech writing. The first is, of course, myth-making. And so there's probably some myth-making around this speech. The second is, and this I believe to a certain extent, the words matter, yes. But how did the words make me feel? What, how did they move me to action or move me to inaction? And so is it possible that Robert F. Kennedy so encapsulated the grief and angst and rage everyone was feeling in that moment, that the speech itself provided enough of a catharsis that no further catharsis was needed on a night when cities across America burned? Yeah. Maybe, it's possible. It's, it's possible. And also, is it the speech and the words or is it that it was Robert F. Kennedy? You know, my brother was slain by an assassin's bullet. Your hero, tribute is slain by an assassin's bullet. We didn't resort to violence. I'm asking you to do the same. I did, maybe it was just that the idea of it um, either had this effect or Indianapolis wasn't gonna riot anyway, but it's a nice story to tell ourselves. Entirely possible, yeah. entirely possible. <sighs> Jeff Nussbaum, author of Undelivered, The Never Heard Speeches That Would Have Rewritten History. Thanks again, Jeff. Thanks, Mike. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. And now the spiel. 20 years ago, free speech zones became the popular oppression of the day. Penning protesters in so as not to disrupt political rallies, cording off broad swaths of campuses, lest student activists be allowed to have their agitating get in the way of their classmates cogitating. Free speech zones were facially ridiculous because, it should go without saying, the United States of America is a free speech zone. First Amendment, you know the rest. But it didn't go without saying, and so we could all turn to one organization that would resolutely state the case for free speech, the ACLU. 
In the year 2000, the New Mexico chapter of the ACLU and a couple students took New Mexico State University to court and challenged that school's free speech zone policy. They won. In 2006, the University of Nevada at Reno changed its free speech zone policy after student activists aided by the ACLU took them on. For a time, the trend was clear. The ACLU would challenge the very idea of quarantining free speech. Earlier this year, a free speech zone ban came before the Georgia legislature, legislation telling state colleges and universities that you can't sequester speech. And so it was that the ACLU came before the legislative committee and said this. And so we speak with investment and authority as a group that has defended free speech for over 100 years on this issue. That was Vasu Ibraharaman, ACLU of Georgia Senior Policy Counsel and Deputy Political Director. But there was something unusual to Ibraharaman's testimony. Well, actually, it wasn't unusual if you've been following how the issue of free speech has been treated by its erstwhile champions. Ibraharaman was there to oppose the bill. In fact, the ultimate vote was that every Democrat who cast a vote was against the bill and every Republican in the Georgia House and Senate voted for it. Passed was signed into law by the governor. But why would Democrats and all the Democrats be against free speech? The answer is a little bit in the specific crafting of this bill and in general, the state of speech in America today. The Georgia bill mirrored dozens of others introduced and passed into law. That is by design because it was authored by ALEC, the American Legislative Exchange Council, which was formerly called the Conservative Caucus of State Legislators. ALEC championed over the years and literally wrote many state stand-your-ground laws. ALEC tightened voting laws, making it harder to cast ballots. ALEC crafted rafts of environmental deregulation. ALEC wrote tougher laws related to criminal justice and prison privatization. But then, about a decade ago, ALEC changed on that issue in keeping with the legislative priorities of their major backers, the Koch brothers. So, On this, there was a reason for Democrats to at least be cautious. Perhaps there were poison provisions hidden in the bill or cat's paws that could be snuck into the legislation. But a reading of the nine-page bill offers no strong evidence for any of that. Here's why Abhiraman said the ACLU couldn't support the Forum Act. This right here is a little too vague uh, and What are our concerns with vague provisions like that? They don't provide adequate notice of what is prohibited, and they can lead to arbitrary enforcement. The concern was the provision which said that colleges could require that counter-protesters not substantially disturb the original protesters' free speech. In other words, someone speaking in this new free speech everywhere, not just in free speech zones ruling... Someone is speaking, the counter-protester can't shout so loud or drown out the speaker. That, too, would be an abridgment of free speech. And the ACLU and some others who are going to hear from said, that's not fair. We want the right to have full counter-speech, including the ability to drown out those we don't like. So out of this concern that the free speech rights of a hypothetical counter-protester might be infringed, the ACLU infringed the free speech right of everyone who was outside a designated area. Not every free speech group agreed with the ACLU on this. 
FIRE, the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, supported the Georgia bill, which passed. Since their inception in 1999, FIRE has, along with the ACLU, opposed free speech zones. But now that the ACLU has ceded that ground, FIRE holds firm. FIRE is sometimes criticized by the left as being too aligned with the right. I don't know about that. I do know that PEN America, another major player in the free speech space, is also consistently opposed to free speech zones, writing, PEN America does not support the designation of a specific area as exclusive zones for student protests and other expressive activity as these zones inhibit speech. Their existence enables schools to shut down free expression that falls outside of them, which may violate the First Amendment. They also send the message to students that free speech is something to be corralled and contained, restricted only to permitted locations. Greg Lukianoff is the president of FIRE and is also the co-author of The Coddling of the American Mind, How Good Intentions and Bad Ideas Are Setting Up a Generation for Failure. That book introduced the concept of safetyism, which they define as elevating the idea of safety, including emotional safety, as a moral culture in which people are unwilling to make trade-offs demanded by other practical and moral concerns. Now, with that in mind, here's how local Atlanta channel CBS 46 covered the state Senate's passage of the bill, quoting students Jordan Mason and James Williams. Those zones on public colleges, allowing groups to demonstrate where they'd like on campus. It says to me that our legislators are not worried about our safety. I think it's a slap in the face to us saying that we hear you, but we really don't want to hear you. A growing group of students say that bill threatens their safety when outside groups come to campus. In the legislation, the students' right to counter protests is limited. The argument is that if neo-Nazis come to campus, they'll have to be accommodated. And student activists like Jordan and James will not be able to counter-protest or jeer them. Whether that actually is a rule that will be enforced is speculative. And calls to incitement or violence are specifically mentioned as not allowed as free speech in the Forum Act. The ACLU's objection, the demand for a more perfect definition of disruption, which could use decibel levels or other empirical standards, I do think would make the bill better. I also think ALEC is not an organization that I would want to have a strong hand in my state legislature. That said, free speech zones were once rightly seen as inimical to the ideals of free speech, and they should still be regarded as such. The ACLU has come to prize other virtues more, however, which is sad because they are the ACLU, or were. The ACLU's opposition to this bill and the others like it in other states is not in keeping with their 100-plus-year-old tradition, but is in keeping with recent developments in which the organization ghost wrote an op-ed of questionable veracity for Amber Heard in exchange for a big donation, criticized the acquittal of Kyle Rittenhouse, even though his actions didn't violate law, supported the banning of a book on issues involving trans children, instructed their lawyers to criticize the views of clients whose thoughts they hold to be abhorrent, arguing for the continued existence of free speech zones in these specific cases where legislatures have sought them is a break with their tradition. Today's ACLU is very sensitive to the cost of free speech. It used to be more sensitive to the cost of threatening free speech. Yes, the Georgia Forum Act was imperfect. And when it comes to free speech, you can't really talk about not letting the perfect be the enemy of the good. Uncomfortable or objectionable speech is not just imperfect. It's often flat out not good, except for the fact that it is speech. 
which is ipso facto a good. That's it for today's show. Corey War is the assistant producer of The Gist. Joel Patterson is the senior producer. Michelle Pesca is the co-founder of the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom. The Gist is produced in collaboration with Lipson's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to advertisecast.com slash thegist. Oom Peru, G Peru, Du Peru, and thanks for listening.